we've got a lot to go through yet. Uh, we're all sort of looking at the lame duck, which I'll talk about in a minute. But uh, And thanks for the great job this society does, and Jim Councilman's leadership as well, because uh, you know you really do need places where you can get together and talk about some of these issues and, and uh, uh, you know, really kind of uh, network, because we really are at, at an important time. Uh, let me first talk just a little bit about the election and a little bit about where I see tax policy going in the future, and then maybe some questions if that's time, if there's time for that. But let me know when it's time to end. Um, yeah, I I looked at this, and, and of course this this does seem a little different than 2010. But clearly, if you look at all the polls and sort of the races that are happening, uh, it really is trending our way. And, and when you have a president that's at 39 or 40. Um, it just is a great opportunity. Um, in terms of the Kentucky Senate race, I saw the DSCC pulled out. They're not going to buy any more ads there. I mean, this was their top target um, uh, of the cycle. Um, you look around the country, and and we're we're seeing, um, at least in the last week, you saw sort of these, some of these races widen. Now they're coming back together. They always do tighten at the end, and that's why it's so important not to kind of take any any sort of uh, comfort in that you're ahead because now is when you really have to push through to the end. Um, and I think that we have some tremendous opportunities. And it is important that just recently that I, I saw that uh, both Angus King and Joe Manchin have said they, they would consider caucusing with the Republicans, which is sending a huge signal um, around the country. Um, now, I don't know how serious they are, but if coal were one of my big industries, and I were a Democrat, I think I might be caucusing with the Republicans, too. <laughs> um, uh, so that, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Now, in Michigan, um, we have uh, our governor's race is going, is, is going better. Uh, I think what happened is in August, uh, Mark Schauer very aggressive. We have our primary August 5th, and generally after that, it's sort of quiet until after Labor Day. It's sort of the typical thing. Mark Schauer, who's a Democrat uh, candidate for governor, aggressively went on TV with really sharp ads, really attacking the integrity of the governor, sort of moved his numbers up. And, uh, but now I think you're seeing that race settle back. Recent polls have the governor ahead, Rick Snyder by seven points, and his campaign is now operating on all eight cylinders. And really, I think we just need to make sure everything is implemented so that he wins. Uh, even when you're in Detroit, people know that things have gotten better in Detroit. And that's not easy to say. Um, very much taken on the leadership issues and done the difficult things that we need people in office to do. And one of the things that that you know I, I see as I travel around is, is people want something to happen. Uh, they're really uh, tired of, and, and frankly for the last two years, to some extent both sides have said, if we do nothing, we'll win. And um, the problem is we're really still facing a, a really fragile economic environment. Um, you know, have negative growth uh, in the last quarter. The last quarter was over 4%. The quarter before that was negative, actually negative. And the, the economy retracted. And you all know the numbers in terms of uh, youth unemployment, um, number of people who left the workforce. Uh, it's at record levels. So even though our rate is, is, is below 6 and we can sort of be happy about that, it really isn't reflective of what's happening up there. And while at least until recently the market seemed to be doing well, that doesn't really translate when you're at home and uh, talking to people. It just the market's doing well. That doesn't mean that families are doing better. And part of the problem is incomes have either 
median incomes are either flat or, or uh, declining. So there's a lot of there's a lot of anger out there. Um, you look around the world and you see what is happening in Europe. Uh, really, uh, um, I mean, we look good in comparison. I'd say it's only relative. But they've pretty much done all they can on fiscal policy and monetary policy there. What else is left? Um, what are they going to do to try to create growth? You're seeing you know, China's economy not uh, hitting the numbers it had. So the, sort of the horizon looks really challenging uh, for us in the future. And obviously one of the things we can do, and there's, there's many in terms of uh, policy, but one of the things is tax reform. And so uh, that's why I and other members of the committee worked for three years to really get this detailed draft. And, um, obviously, uh, because I've heard from a lot of people, you could make different trade-offs in that legislation. But the, the key thing going forward is um, really two things. One is people said, you just can't do it. It's too hard. And we proved, yeah, it is hard, but you can do it with a comprehensive bill that actually grows the economy by 20%, increase median incomes by $1,300 a year, increases charitable giving by $2 billion, 2 million more jobs. Uh, each and you know, so some significant uh, positive improvements. But the second thing is, we got a dynamic score, and this has been something that we've been fighting about the whole time I've been in Congress. And you know, as you know, under static scoring, the assumption is that tax policy doesn't have any effect on people's behavior. I think we all know that's not true. And I always liken it to high school physics, where they say first assume there's no gravity in your class. Well, like, well, that's not the real world. Um, there is gravity, so what are, what are we doing here? And that's similar with static scoring. So now in every bill going forward, we will actually have some analysis of what the real world will, how it will be impacted. And that will actually help us drive the debate, the debate because not only did the Joint Committee on Taxation analyze the bill with growth numbers, but several outside independent groups looked at it and said, this is gonna create economic growth. I think as we move forward, it's going to be economic growth that's going to be really the touchstone. And it, it isn't just in the macro sense, I mean, that's important to all of us, but it's going to mean, what does this really mean for individuals and families? And it will mean more benefits, it will mean higher wages, it will mean the ability to provide for yourself and your family to really achieve the dreams that you and your, your um, yourself, your kids, or your family may have. That's, I think, going to be a really huge challenge going forward. Obviously, there's other areas in energy policy, regulatory policy. I mean, 37,000 regulations in the last decade in the U.S. I think we're a pretty regulated society. Jim and I just came back from the EU um, with several members. Um, we were there really trying to set the stage for the uh, U.S.-EU trade agreement, which the European parliamentarians have come to us three different times. And I just thought it was very important to send a signal that we were as interested in this as they were because of the potential for growth there. And we heard it again and again, their concerns about growth. And when we talked to them about how valuable this was in terms of growth for both economies going forward and for the people who live in the 28 uh, nations of the EU and who live in the United States, that really did resonate. They're all very interested in, I'll tell you, 28 uh, nations, seven different parties. It's a really a challenging environment over there. But uh, that is something that I think we have to do as we move ahead. Obviously, TPP is, is another area. If we can have a counterweight to China, uh, and if we can have some of these very large, uh, world-class agreements that really set the standard, 
it will force those economies that aren't following sort of the rule of law and the, 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 the standards. First of all, it'll elevate the standards, and it'll force other nations to meet those standards. And I think that's going to be a real important thing going forward. So there's clearly energy policy, trade policy, tax policy, regulatory policy. All those things can help us. And I think as I uh, travel around, I think voters do want, uh, particularly the independents who really decide who's in the majority around this, uh, who wins the White House, they want to see us do something. And they know that that means you're going to have to make trade-offs. And I, I think that uh, you, know, you can say, and I'll never forget, um, Alan Simpson called me up after we uh, release the tax bill. He goes, well, you'll never work anywhere again. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, as I, as I go around, people actually know that it wasn't perfect, but they're so grateful that somebody is trying to move the ball forward. And I think that that's what voters really want to see. They want to see uh, what, is, what is your vision, what are you going to do, um, what, what is your roadmap for and I think, actually, in Michigan, I think it was a real turning point in our debate between, uh, showed sort of as uh, emblematic of where the Democrats are and where we are. Um, Mark Schauer was pretty much on talking points. The governor was able to describe not only what he did, but in detail his vision for where he's going to go in the next four years. And I think that's what people want to see. And that's what they want to hear about. And I don't think that um, they're going to be satisfied. Now, in terms of tax reform, I think um, you know, whether it's one year, three years, or five years, it's going to happen. And it's going to follow a model very similar to what the committee draft put out. And I like to use car analogies. I see Tori's here. Well, it, that's the chassis. And you may change the grill or the taillights, but the chassis is going to be very similar to the draft that was put out there. And um, because uh, we, you know, we had growth of about $700 billion over the window, that gives you some flexibility in terms of what you might do in, in a new version, uh, or 2.0, um, or this version with, with changes. Um, in terms of extenders, um, one of the things that's kind of hard to predict, and as you know, everybody, you get asked by all of your employers, I get asked everywhere I go, you know, what's the lame duck going to look like? I said, well, you know, predicting a legislative session is really not a very uh, productive exercise. <laughs> But uh, we really do have to find out what the election uh, does. Because that e either we're going to have a very short lame duck, or we may have a longer lame duck. But I think under either scenario, we're going to have to do something on extenders. And obviously, I've been pretty open about the fact that I want to see permanent policy there. I want to see where we can get it, permanent policy. Again, we're the only nation in the world that has tax policy that expires. No other country does that. And so you might wonder, well, why are we doing it? <laughs> if nobody else does it, it might really cause you to reconsider that. So to the extent we can do that, and that would obviously be a negotiated thing. Uh, it depends who's in control and whether that much of that negotiation occurs now. But I don't know how you go over into next year not having addressed at some level the extenders. We know at least what the Senate committee has done. Uh, in the House, we've actually had floor votes, and on permanent policy, we've had significant bipartisan uh, participation in all the permanent policy that we want to do. So there's there's clearly some ground for that. So we go into the negotiation with a House position, 
we're going to go into the Senate um, if the Democrats retain control, which I don't think they will, but if they do, not knowing really where the full Senate is. Uh, and if Republicans uh, control, they'll just have a bigger seat at the table. I think it could, if we win the Senate, it'll be much more like a 2010, um, I think, uh, negotiation. Um, and uh, that's fine with me. I think that, that would work out great. Um, so with that, uh, we were talking about uh, going through the last years, and um, one of the things is, one of the things you can't keep is all your casework because there's social security numbers and confidential information. So we have already shredded 10,000 pounds of individual case, case work, but you have to kind of go through it all. And it's really funny, going back, you actually do really remember all of these cases and all the problems people had and uh, going through it. It's really a history. I've got about 49 boxes that are about three feet by a foot and a half filled with press clips. and. Um, Initially, we thought, well, this is all online. You know, we're in a modern society. And then we realized that the Ogemaw County Herald is probably not online. <laughs> and will never be online. So we're going through all of that in a painstaking way. And it is, it is amazing. And we're all having a lot of fun laughing at all the sort of issues that have come up, uh, local issues and uh, press clips. Because we kept every press clip, not just about me, but about any important issue in the district for 24 years. So there's a lot to uh, look at and go through, but um, we're all painstakingly going through it. Um, and then um, all my papers are going to go to the University of Michigan, which has a school of uh, public policy that really keeps the public records of uh, public officials in Michigan. So that's that's where it all goes. But um, there's uh, certainly a lot there, and you you realize. Um, all of the effort that has gone into sort of moving this forward, and it's a team. It's a team event, so it's great to see Joanna and Rob here. And, uh, uh, certainly, all, Jim. Jim's not. Jim's still on the clock, so uh, he's got to keep going. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, thank you for uh, this. I know we're all looking forward to an interesting fall after the election. Uh, a little bit of travel with Ripon, but uh, if there's any questions, I can answer. Be glad to do it. So thanks much. Joanna, you did such a great job. You get the, the, the ability to ask the first or the last question. I'll take the first. Okay, and we have a microphone, everyone. Uh, the last time we did this, everybody said we can't hear the questioners. So, here you go. Right. I just want to know, since you came, what's been the biggest difference that you've seen in Congress since you came here and now? Well, obviously, the technology. Uh, we're going through all of the technology stuff, and I have cassette tapes, I have beta, I have VHS, <laughs> CDs, and we have, and then information online. So the online stuff, the University of Michigan could just pull off, but we've got boxes in boxes. I mean, we taped, as you remember, every floor speech and everything. So uh, the uh, clearly the biggest change is the rise of the internet. I mean, when I was chief of staff, I could never leave my desk, much less leave the country, um, because you had to answer the phone. And now you can be anywhere, and I mean, the good news is when I did leave my desk, I was away. I mean, that's probably a big change, but I think certainly the rise of technology and the internet. And then secondly, in the way uh, the Hill is, is clearly after 9-11, the security changed dramatically. When I think of the, the mid-80s um, and uh, you know, just sort of walking around, um, 
it's a very different environment. I mean, we've all adjusted to it, but I think those are two sort of big changes. Um, but also, I think the, the, the third biggest change, which has been recent, and, and sort of really with this administration, is, I mean, legislative teams of the President of the United States were all over the hill. And actually, you saw them everywhere you went, and you knew what was happening. And there's such a disengagement over the last uh, term that that is a very big change. And I, I just don't know if that's going to come back or if that's a trend that will continue. Um, when I look at Bush 1, well, first of all, a lot of people don't know just how involved Ronald Reagan was. I mean, he called members of Congress. I mean, Bill McBride, was, Bill, Bill McBride and I were chiefs of staff together, and Bill actually uh, helped train me. And um, <laughs> it's funny, we, we were called administrative assistants then. And I'll never forget, there was a note on my chair, and it was a Bill McBride AA meeting tonight. And I asked him, said, what are you, Bill Shooty came in and said, what are you doing? <laughs> so, anyway. Um, but I think a lot of people forget, um, I mean, because that was then sort of the line the press has put. I mean, Ronald Reagan was so active, and his legislative team was so active. But you look at what he was trying to do in an agenda sense, big things. He called members of Congress. He had members of Congress to Camp David. He um, and I remember when the Farm Bill. I remember telling people, "Do not have the president call. We're not ready to. You know, we can't tell him yes yet." And I remember just saying, "It's not a good time for Ronald Reagan to call." Um, and of course, um, that just isn't the case. Now. And obviously, um, with George Bush, think of the number of vetoes that we sustained when George H. W. Bush was there in a minority. Um, and I guess the last thing I'd say, having been in the minority twice, in the majority uh, twice, uh, it's really something your parents taught you, but you want to treat people the same no matter where you are. And obviously, the golden rule is still one of the biggest rules to live by, and um, that sort of helps, because you never know when you're going to find yourself in the minority again, and obviously in January 3, I'll be in a minority of one, so, um, <laughs> but you do want to make sure that uh, that's how you sort of conduct your, yourself. Chairman, you uh, mentioned the uh, need for permanency in our tax policy. Yeah. Uh, are there, uh, is there any chance that Republicans, in your view, would go for something on versions uh, in exchange for something permanent? Well, if you try to do something in sort of a stovepipe on inversions, you can be sure it won't be effective. I mean, we did it in 2004. Uh, it clearly hasn't changed things. Even with what the administration's tried to do on inversions, um, companies are still moving forward. Um, you know, and even in, in the letters the Secretary of the Treasury's written in in phone conversations, he admits the best thing we can do is lower rates. So I think, I think it's a larger package. Now, interesting development in the last couple of weeks. I mean, Zeitz was at the Washington Economic Club, and his whole presentation was how the president's proposals are the same as the camp discussion draft. Um, then Gene Sperling wrote an op-ed the other day saying, I wish he'd done it when he was actually was in the White House, but um, saying how similar the two approaches are. Now, you don't know if that's just to sort of, sort of give something to the business community before the election so they are reassured, or whether this is a serious, these are serious developments. 
but there is no reason why uh, we can't move forward on, I mean, the, the Democrats call it business tax reform, which is corporate and individual in the sense of pass-through entities. Um, but again, I think, I think Treasury has done a lot more work than they've admitted. As I said at one forum, I think there's a draft in the drawer over at the Treasury Department. I wish they'd pull it out, um, and I think that's true. Uh, and so the real question is, does this president want to engage on this issue? I think right now the inversion issue is a great political issue, but we cannot sustain the position we're in right now. Companies are, you know the list, it's really long. And, and I try to explain to some of the uh, Democrat friends, you know, they do have a fiduciary responsibility. This is not just, oh, we're trying to game the system or we're trying to just maximize. They have a fiduciary responsibility to make these decisions, and so they cannot uh, ignore. Now, I do think in the public place, there's sort of a rectangle of what is legally permissible, and then inside of that, I put an oval of what is acceptable to the public. And that is a changing dynamic right now. Looked at Walgreens, thinking, well, we're in the public place. We're not sure we can do that. But um, Burger King's moving forward, and and the reason that just a sort of standalone inversion bill won't work is you know, Burger King's creating a third entity. So anything you do isn't going to change that. <laughs> so they can keep going forward. But if we had a lower rate, and look, this is not just me saying. It's years of testimony before the Ways and Means Committee, the businesses and the CEOs and practitioners saying if you lower the rate that obviously takes away the incentive to do that and many of them settled on 25 as the rate that would be the most ideal to really take away the advantages of doing that. Um, you also have this development in Europe where they're looking very hard at um, the profits that US companies are, are making and the amount they're contributing I don't know if you saw Starbucks is going to voluntarily make some sort of payment in England. Um, you saw Amazon is being criticized for a tax agreement they made in um, Luxembourg. And the, so the, the EU and the uh, countries over there, nations over there, are, are really sort of changing the dynamic on this. So I'm not sure that um, that approach would, would work. We really need to do more. So, um, yes, Wendy. Well, it's also good to see Don Carlson here, who works with Chairman Archer. He's a great, great leader. So. Well, I appreciate your comments on tax, yes. and many of us have worked with you over the years yes. on healthcare issues as yes. well. And I'm sitting here thinking, as you look back on the past and as you're looking forward um, to the next stage in your life, what do you see as sort of the next big healthcare um, issue that actually is going to happen. I mean, I know you've spent a lot of time on premium support yeah. and Medicare and, yeah. you know, device tax is still sort of out there. There's a lot of things that could happen. What, what do you see happening in the next year? Well, I think immediately at some point, now I don't know whether it's a, a repeal vote and a veto, or but we're going to have to get to the problems in the Affordable Care Act because they're huge. I mean, we still don't know who's signed up. I mean, I can't tell you how many young people, and, but the, the guesses that we all get are that they are not meeting their targets and that the premiums are going to be much more expensive. The other shoe that's going to drop is people who have 
receipts subsidies that don't qualify for them and their refund is going to get attached and you're going to have a lot of difficulties not to mention all the other structural problems with the Affordable Care Act. So I think that's an area in the healthcare um, group. I mean there's obviously many many other issues um, and I will say this before 2009 as you know our members it's not really the biggest Republican issue but as we drafted a bill and ramped up for that debate, our members got very comfortable talking about health care. Now there's been quite a turnover since 2009 in the Congress, so we have to start all over again on that. Um, but uh, I, I'm confident that our members are capable of uh, engaging that issue and talking about it. And when we, when we have engaged on health care issues, I mean, look, the Medicare debates of 96, we actually won the senior vote. Um, I think if you look at 2010, we actually won sort of, you know, a lot of that describing what had happened to Medicare um, there. But I think we're going to have to, as a party, decide that we're willing to engage on addressing the problems with the Affordable Care Act. I don't see a total repeal uh, happening, even if we win the Senate because of the 60 vote issue. One last question. We obviously appreciate all of your leadership you've shown on, on the trade issue as well, um, whereas obviously at TPP and, and the other things we talked about. Um, I've heard some rumors about a push to try to move TPA and lame duck along yeah. with extenders, and, and obviously the U.S. automakers have some concerns over some issues with so just interested in your thoughts on TPA. Yeah. Well, I've been pretty vocal about uh, no TPP without TPA. So we've got to put those in the right order, and I think the administration is finally there. Um, there are some important meetings going on regard with regard to TPP right now. There's this ministerial in Sydney, um, and um, you know, it's a little unclear if APEC is going to follow that or not. I, I, we think it is, but they're, the, the Japanese are not where they need to be right now. So I, I, I don't know whether there will be a breakthrough in Sydney or not. Um, you know, clearly, Abe's um, public comments would indicate that he was ready to do these things. I just don't know if he's able to, to deliver on that. So TPP is still um, not ready to, to go. I'm ready to move forward without Japan. I think we need to tell them very bluntly, either you're in or you're out. I mean, first of all, they're a late entry to the negotiation, and we said at the time, yes, you can enter, but you can't lower the standards or delay. So, but uh, clearly with Japan in, it's a much larger economic uh, agreement, and if part of TPP is a counterweight to China, you, you'd want to see if th that can work out. Um, TPA is really uh, up to the administration now to engage. Um, we have a really good bipartisan TPA proposal out there, um, and, and many of those uh, negotiations, Baucus and I were in the same place against the administration. So I don't know where they expect they're going to go, um, but in my view, we do need to, to, to conclude that. Now, whether it's uh, in lame duck or shortly after, I, I don't think that's a huge problem. Um, it will depend on the makeup there. But um, the, the important point is we're going to get TPA, and it's going to be a bipartisan vote. 
because again, these growth issues are so important that if we don't start structurally moving toward um, a place, because what it is is about trying to really set some common rules. And if we don't start doing that, it's going to be much harder. Um, and look, the growth is going to be uh, coming from uh, you know, the ability to trade around the world for not just us, but everybody else. And that's where you, that's where you get economic benefit and growth. So um, we'll have to see, really, um, the election's important there because, um, I mean, I realize with the Senate, you've, you've got a different animal there, but it, it would, could make a difference sort of who's leading the issue as opposed to, um, uh, and that, that will, will matter. But I, I feel good about where we are on that, and um, I'm confident that if it's not, if it's not in the lane duck, it'll be shortly after. I can see reasons for both sides to get it done in the lame duck. I mean, frankly, some people would want it before they go into cycle, for example, in the next year. And as a, you know, in the Senate, it's all about who's in cycle and who's out of cycle. And so why not try to do it then? But there may not be a consensus at that point. So. Well, it has come to an end. We have right. done some research, though, Mr. Chairman, uh, one in particular we, we would like to give something to Jim Brandell for always taking our phone calls, our emails, helping us get rooms, etc. And as you all may or may not know, very soon he'll be reaching out to you because he'll be doing another triathlon. And so the mascot for your new bike, of course, is the Teddy Roosevelt bobble. Oh. So we'd like to give that to you. And Jim, in, in talking to your staff, we wanted to give you something very appropriate. You've been always so generous with your time and been a great friend. And Jim Brandell said, for God's sakes, do not give him a Teddy Roosevelt bust. We have no room. We have no boxes. We have, what did you say, 49 boxes already? So we got something for one of the unsung heroes in your family, a little Havanese named Emmett. <laughs> Emmett is their uh, dog back in Michigan, and so on behalf of the Ripon Society, 50 years of pets and presidents at the White House oh, to Emmett and to his great audience.